Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. A few years ago, uh, when Pastor Steve was was still leading East Hills, uh, he and I were talking at one of our staff meetings about how it feels like for us as preachers, God wants to make sure that whatever we're going to be preaching on, we experience in some way, particularly as that uh, day of preaching, it comes closer. And uh, I think this is uh, actually a relatively universal experience for preachers, uh, and, and I'm grateful for it, because what that means is I'm, I'm not up here uh, sharing anything that I'm an expert in at all, so I hope you know that, that I'm up here just sharing what God is doing in me. Um, that's, I, I get a, a microphone and the privilege to share what God is working on in me, uh, and if that uh, touches your heart, that is fantastic. Um, that's Holy Spirit at work. Um, that's, that's not really something I can do because uh, I'm not reading your mail, um, but, uh, but Jesus is, and that's a good thing. So uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful that we get to, to do that, to just share what God is doing in us. And Steve and I were talking about that and how we sort of get to experience then whatever it is that we're preaching on, which some topics, that's not so great. But so in, in talking about this and kind of joking about it, uh, somebody on our staff at the time said, you know, maybe we should just do a series called How to Follow Jesus When Everything's Going Great. Because then we can live that one out. And that did seem like a better plan than preaching on Job or something. So uh, we, we thought about that. I, I don't know that there's a whole series there, but it is an interesting thought experiment. What does it look like to follow Jesus when everything's going great? Because it does have its own unique challenges and temptations. Maybe we could call them a genie temptations, right? Like you, you find the buried lamp and you rub the lamp and a genie pops out and you get your three wishes or infinity wishes or however that game works. And, and what would happen... I mean, I mean, really think this through for your, for your own life. If, if somebody offered you $100,000 a month for the rest of your life, if somebody offered you the opportunity to be in charge of your favorite company or favorite team, if somebody said they could make your family everything you wanted it to be, what temptations would you face? Now, most of us aren't dealing with genie temptations. Most of us are dealing with temptations that come along as most temptations do. When we're feeling alone, when we're feeling exhausted, when we're feeling angry, that's when temptations seem to rise up and close in. The devil's favorite strategy is isolation and lies. And if you're a note taker, there's your your first note for the day. The devil's favorite strategy is isolation and lies to get somebody alone, to get somebody to stop listening to the wise and caring voices in their life to lie about who God is, about who they are, 
about what the situation really is. Lies about whether you are lovable, whether you really belong or are worthy of belonging. The devil's favorite game is isolation and shame. Now, the Bible is really clear that there is a personified, animated evil that scripture calls the devil or the Satan. But if you don't believe in any of of that stuff, uh, we don't actually have to look at the devil for this. You can just look at how people treat other people and how people tempt other people, how people ruin other people. If one person is grooming another person for sexual exploitation or to join a cult or some extremism of some sort, they follow this same strategy. Get them alone, get them isolated, get them to stop listening to the people who care about them. Lie to them about the people who care about them. Lie to them about whether they really care. Lie to the person about who they are, whether they're lovable, whether they're worthy of belonging. Lie to them about how important or not important they are. Get them alone, get them to stop listening, lie to them, use them, abuse them, refuse them, and move on to the next victim. It's the same strategy. For those of us who follow Jesus and his teachings, we have to see that he's clear on this point. That there is an enemy of God and the devil uses these strategies and uses them when things are going poorly and when things are going really well. We have come to the last Sunday of Lent this season of preparing our hearts and minds for the coming of uh, Good Friday and Easter, for Jesus's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, which, by the way, we will celebrate all of that uh, next weekend. So uh, this Friday is Good Friday, is the, uh, and we will gather in here at seven o'clock Friday night, um, and that will be live streamed. Uh, both of our gatherings next weekend will be live streamed Friday night at seven, where we will uh, remember, reflect on how God demonstrated his love for us through the sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ. And then there will be no Saturday night gathering, but we will all meet Sunday morning to celebrate to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead, that we worship a savior who is very much alive. And uh, we'll celebrate together in worship, normal time in here at 1030. Now, if you want to get your morning started a little earlier than that, there's a cinnamon roll buffet at 930. Warm, delicious, fantastic. That'll be downstairs. Uh, Easter egg hunt for the fifth grade and unders at 10 over at Rotary Park. Uh, So all of that will be next weekend. And then we will gather together to celebrate uh, Jesus' resurrection, that our God, our Savior, is a living God, is very much alive. And then uh, we'll gather for worship. We'll send the kids downstairs for their own party. So a whole lot of celebrating next weekend, celebrating this weekend, remembering this weekend, reflecting on this weekend that changed everything forever. 
And so as we head toward these celebrations, we come toward the end of Jesus's life on this earth, the end of his ministry. And, and we'll get to the end uh, a little bit later. But I think to understand the end and the triumph of the end, it helps to reflect on the beginning, on how things started. Uh, the gospel writer Luke uh, in, in his gospel, and gospel just means good news, it's his story, uh, his uh, perspective of the good news of Jesus, uh, of the, the life and ministry and salvation through, through Jesus Christ. And he begins his recounting of the good news with the famous Christmas story that we know from Charlie Brown and all of those kinds of things. And then he fast forwards very quickly to Jesus as an adult and the initiation of Jesus' adult ministry. And he starts with Jesus's baptism because baptism was this public symbol of commitment to a cause, commitment to a mission, commitment to purity. And at this baptism, Luke tells the story of a voice from the heavens ringing out as Jesus comes up out of the water. This is my dearly loved son in whom I am very pleased. Jesus has this affirmation of heaven. There's a crowd gathered. There are people ready to follow him. It is time for ministry and mission to start. And Jesus goes away from all of it. And he goes out into the desert for 40 days to be alone. And as Sky talked to us about a couple weeks ago, this is not Jesus aiming to be alone. This is Jesus aiming to be alone with the Father. To spend time with God before any ministry begins to let this affirmation of love and identity as a child of God sink in something all of us need to do. But Jesus went out in the desert for 40 days and he didn't eat. So he got real hungry and he got real tired. And it is in this moment of hunger and exhaustion and weakness that the devil sees an opportunity and pounces. So we're in Luke chapter four, starting in verse one. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, so this is right after his baptism, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. 40 days of temptation. Verse three, then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. And here we see the devil's favorite strategy at work. Get Jesus when he is isolated from the affirming voices in his life and begin to poke holes in his identity. If you are the son of God. Remember, this is just affirmed in a booming voice from heaven that he is a dearly loved son of God. If you are the son of God, if you're really loved, well, why don't we try this? So if you are the son of God, just turn this stone into bread. Wouldn't that be so easy? Satan picking away at his identity, at his calling. 
Uh, We also see Luke drawing a connection here for his readers because his readers would have been familiar with the Old Testament story that we've been talking about the last couple weeks of the people of Israel being in the desert for 40 years. So we're playing that parallel 40 days and 40 years. And when the people got hungry over and over again, they complained and got bitter over and over again. And they doubted God and they went against God and they made their own gods because they were hungry. And he's drawing this parallel to say, that's not how Jesus responded. When Jesus was hungry, he turned toward the Father. He turned toward God and depended on him. Now, the devil did not just take one punch. Remember, this was 40 days of temptations. And how many of us know that the devil rarely just takes one punch when we're down, right? So he keeps going. In in verse 5 of Luke chapter 4, Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. Like all good temptations, these lies are buried in half-truths. Because the truth is, Jesus could have done any of these things. Truth is, Jesus is the Son of God. Truth is, we see Jesus in the not-too-distant future feed thousands of people miraculously. Certainly, he could have fed himself. Jesus will be the king who is worshipped. Jesus will overcome death These things are part of the purpose for Jesus. He could do these things. There's some truth in here. What the devil is offering is a shortcut. What the devil is offering is control over the story. And I wonder how many of us and our temptations, and the temptations we give into. And we, we think about the thing that we're giving into, that the, the person, the food, the, the lust, the consuming, whatever it is that we're giving into. I wonder how often that roots back to, I want to control the story. I want the shortcut. There are questions buried in these temptations. Uh, seeds of doubt to sow controversy and division in the mind and heart of Jesus. And part of the beauty of Jesus's story is, as the writer of Hebrews will remind us later in the New Testament, that he faced all the same temptations we face. So see if any of these questions sound familiar buried in these temptations. Will God really provide? Could you do it better? Shouldn't you make your own bread? Shouldn't you make sure your family is taken care of? 
Will God really provide? After all, there's hungry people all over the world. How do you know God won't let you be one of them? Shouldn't you control everything about your kids? After all, you're in charge of them, aren't you? Will God, will God take care of you and your desires? Remember that one time you had a dream and God didn't give it to you? Shouldn't you do whatever you have to do to take care of you? You're not really making it all about you. You're getting ready to take care of others, won't you? You do anything to provide for those you love, no matter the shortcut. Isn't that the loving thing to do? Just turn these stones into bread. Oh, and let me show you what I can put you in charge of. Is God holding out on you? Shouldn't you be in charge? Look at the power and authority and attention I can give you. Wouldn't it be great if that post goes viral so you can be more popular? Wouldn't it be great to have everybody like you? Make sure you do whatever it takes to get all those people to like you. I mean, doing it God's way isn't going to do it for you. You've tried that turn the other cheek thing, right? It's gotten you nothing, right? Shouldn't you be in charge of what is fair and just? You're a really fair, loving person. You'd probably do a great job helping everyone be more loving. And you know, if you were in charge of this country, this county, this church, that company, you would make much better decisions. Shouldn't you have the love, authority, and popularity you deserve? Can you really trust God to give you that? After all, he seems so much more focused on getting people to worship him than to worship you. I mean, does God even see you? Are you even worth his time? Will he really protect you? Like the scriptures say, will God really protect you? Is God really trustworthy? After all, you've gotten hurt lots of times. You've gone through some horrible things. Where was God then? Can you really trust him? You decided he let you down before, didn't he? You've tried trusting people and they just hurt you. You're learning it's safer to protect yourself, right? Look out for number one, right? Could God really be any different? He's too busy, too aloof, too uncaring to actually take care of you. You're gonna have to protect yourself. Trust no one else. Let me help you be in charge of your own life. Let me help you be in charge of anyone who can hurt you. Then you can provide for yourself, take care of it all, and keep yourself safe. And when we are isolated and alone, when we're hurting and tired, we just want to feel better. And we will take whatever path is the easiest to feel better, no matter what shortcuts that means. So we take that shortcut. And it doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't actually make us feel better for very long, if at all, because it turns out we're made for more than shortcuts and rock bread, but we keep coming back, trying again and again and again. And we get further isolated because of our shame, because the devil's favorite game is isolation and shame. And we feel more and more alone. And so we try and try again. But Jesus has a different idea. He remembers the truth because scripture is alive in his heart and mind. He remembers his purpose and there will be no shortcuts. He remembers who he is, that he is God's child. 
I mentioned last week that the goal output of the Christian life is to be like and do like Jesus. To be like Christ in our character, to do like God, to do like Christ in our actions, in how we love and bless the people around us, and in how we fight off temptations. So a tip for fighting temptations. Learn and know truth. Remember your identity. Be clear on your purpose. Learn and know truth. Remember your identity. Be clear on your purpose. Learn and know the truth of who God says he is, of who God says you are, of God's love for you. Spend time with him and his truth. Get to know him personally. Let the truth come alive in your heart and mind. Learn and know the truth of who he says you are. God's word says that you are chosen in his love to be his child. That you are deeply loved and completely forgiven and fully accepted and gladly enjoyed by the creator of the universe. And your purpose is to live into that truth and to share it with others, to be loved by God and to love God and others in return. To be like and do like Jesus because of what Jesus has done for you. And you don't have to make a, a nest or a name or a nation for yourself because of God's love, because of the truth of who God is, the truth of who you are and the purpose he has for you. Uh, the last verse of Luke 4 says the devil left him alone until a later time. And I don't know how many later times there were where Jesus faced temptation from the devil, but I want to fast forward us toward the end of Jesus's story. And the devil is not explicitly in this story, but the temptations for comfort and attention and authority certainly are. Uh, we're nearing the end of Jesus's life on earth at this point. Jesus has been telling his uh, friends and followers that he's going to have to die, that he will rise from the dead, and that uh, all of this is going to get kicked off in Jerusalem. And, and for whatever reason, his followers and disciples uh, really don't get the come back from the dead part, probably because, well, that doesn't happen. Um, and, and they get the death part, particularly the Jerusalem and death part, because uh, they know there are people in Jerusalem that Jesus has kind of stirred up and made enemies of, and, and that there are people there who want to kill him. So he's saying, hey, let's go to Jerusalem. And they're going, bad idea. We would like you to keep living. Um, and, and Jesus is like, actually, got to die. So we're going to Jerusalem. This is where we're headed. Despite their pleas and bargainings, this is where life is going. So we pick up this story as they are on their way to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. So lots of Jewish people like Jesus and his friends are gathering in Jerusalem for this celebration to remember what God had done for their ancestors, what God had done 
uh, for the Israelite people to take them out of slavery and into the promised land. And Jesus intends to be there. So we pick up our story in a small town, uh, little villages outside of Jerusalem. We're in Luke chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 29. As he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and found the colt, just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it for him to ride on. As he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. When he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. He replied, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Do you see the temptations that Jesus faces here? Let the praise and adoration go to your head, Jesus. They're praising you just like they're supposed to. Don't you want them to keep praising you? All you have to do is be the king they want you to be. Storm the Romans, take over the kingdom, put the Jews in charge again. First Rome, then the neighbors, then the world. A little bloodshed is needed, right? You said so yourself. Why not be somebody else's blood? Kill the enemy, earn the people's praise, be the king they want. Jesus, you can have all the comfort and adoration and authority, and it will feel good getting there. Why go through the hard things ahead of you? when all of these people can take you to these places and make it so easy for you. Do you see the temptations here for Jesus' friends, his closest followers? I mean, sure, the praise isn't for them, but, but I mean, it kind of is, right? Like, we're with him. Like, this is my buddy. You're praising him. You're praising me. This is, I mean, this is what we've been waiting for, right? The people are finally getting it. They're praising him just like we've been. We've been following him around for years, waiting for a moment like this when everybody recognizes who he really is. But since we recognized it first, surely comfort and authority and praise is coming our way is this why they've been following Jesus around from tiny town to tiny town with no real place to call home for this moment? For their comfort, respect, authority, for what they get out of it? How about you? Are you following Jesus around for what he can do for you? What about the temptations that the crowd faces here? The temptations to get caught up in groupthink, to ride the fever pitch of praise into storming the castle. 
I think the biggest temptation here for them is the temptation to turn Jesus into the king they want him to be and not the king he actually is. In fact, that group think, which no doubt some people in this crowd are a part of, like they, they were just walking along and now there's a parade and we're praising people. Okay, sure, I'm in. It's a party. That group think in less than a week turns from chance of praise into chance of crucify him. How about you? Have you ever been tempted to turn Jesus into the king you want him to be instead of the king he actually is? Have you ever been tempted to try and manipulate God into giving you what you want instead of simply receiving the truth and love he offers you? Jesus faces the temptation to go for praise and not for purpose. The disciples are tempted to make themselves the ultimate authority here, riding Jesus' coattails to power and pleasure that they really want. The crowd is tempted to turn Jesus into a very different king than he intends to be. How about you? How about us? How would you answer this question? Who is the king of your life? Who is the king of your life? Have you decided that you're the king of your life? That you'll control the story? That you'll receive the praise and carry the power and be the ultimate protector? That you'll take care of you, you'll take care of the people around you? Be honest. How's that working for you? All that pressure of being in charge, of having to make the right decision all the time, because if you make the wrong decision, you might let somebody down. If you don't do the right thing, they may not like you anymore, and they have to like you. That's the point. If you're going to be king of your life, king of the world, it's got to come with praise, it's got to come with comfort. You've got to be right. How's that working for you? Scripture tells us that anyone who recognizes that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that they get to receive the forgiveness of Christ, that they get to receive eternal life. Abundant life. Getting started really is that simple. It's as simple as recognizing that Jesus is the king. Whether we want him to be or not, he just is. That Jesus is king. And believing that God raised him from the dead so that you can be forgiven and you can have everlasting life. Who is the king of your life? For those of us who have decided already to follow Jesus, who have decided that he is our king, who is this king really? 
I mean, I mean, who is he really? I heard somebody say that if Jesus agrees with you on everything, you maybe made yourself the king instead of Jesus. It's at least worth asking. Who is this Jesus really? We get to know him. We get to know the one who died to show us his love, who rose to show us his power, who has promised to be with us in all things and invites us to simply follow. Simply follow. Not to be comfortable, but to be comforted. Not to have all authority, but to be secure in truth. Not to be worshipped, but to find true love from the one who made us, from the one who is worthy of our praise. Who is the king of your life? Jesus would love to be that for you. He's not going to take any shortcuts. He's not going to be the one that you want him to be just because you want him to be it. But he would love to be the king of your life. And he would love to show you his love for you. So if you would like Jesus to be the king of your life, would you pray with me as the worship team comes up? Father God, we declare together this morning that Jesus is the king. Not because we made him that, but because you did. And Father, we believe that you raised him from the dead. That Jesus is a king who is alive and who offers us life. God, we accept your offer of forgiveness. We accept your offer of eternal life. And we dedicate ourselves to follow Jesus as our king. To get to know him. To get to know what is true. God, would you stir truth in us that it would be alive in our hearts and minds. Would you remind us of who you say we are, that we are deeply loved, accepted, and forgiven? Would you remind us of the purpose you have for us and that there are no shortcuts to sharing your love with others, returning your love to you, Jesus, would you be the king of our lives as you truly are? We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.